0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading today
1: from Genesis 2, 21 to 25, and Genesis 3, 6 to 11. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is the word of the Lord.
0: It's good to be with you uh, in the house of God. Uh, And uh, as Tony said on a rainy day, hopefully we are uh, sensing the warmth of God's presence uh, with us as we're here. Uh, if he's just not willing to give us two days in a row of sun. We will take, we'll take this. Um, if, if you're new here or you've been with us for the last few weeks, we were tracking through a series called Jesus Is. And on one of the weeks, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the one who gives us a new purpose in life because he actually invites us to participate in his kingdom. We said that the idea of kingdom is kind of a strange word for us to think about in, in our uh, sort of day and time. We don't, I mean, even though we're part of the commonwealth and whatever, but like kings and queens are sort of something of days gone by. But that the, the kingdom of Jesus is not actually this, this building or a, you know, a castle or a, um, you know, a, a place, a specific geography of rule. But in fact, if we were to understand the kingdom of Jesus, the better translation, it, it's the reign of Jesus. Like R E I J G N R E I G N yes, the reign of Jesus. In other words, Jesus invites us into a life with him to find a new way to be human. It's, it's a new world. It's a new way of living actually here and now, that the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is not this future someday, one day, but actually a reality of God in us and around us that he invites us in to say, I'm going to teach you a new way to be human, a new way to live your life. And that's why, as Tony said in his welcome, the life of Jesus and what we um, experience of him is actually meant to spread out and, and kind of touch and affect every part of our lives was a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, many years ago who said, there isn't any part of creation over which God doesn't say, that's mine, that's mine. And when we say, oh, Jesus has actually come as king, and we invite him to be not just savior but king, there isn't any part of your life and my life that he doesn't say, that's mine. I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about that thing. Now, I know, (laughs) whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that just sounds terrifying. That there isn't any part of our lives where Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. I want to give you two reasons why it's actually good news. One is because the reign and the rule of Jesus is actually quite different than we think it is. Most of the way we understand power and people who come into our lives and want to run our lives and tell us what to do, whatever kind of authority um, system we grew up with, parental authority or government authority or your bosses or whatever political authority, That the the authority and the rule of Jesus is not like anything we have ever seen before. And so it's something different. And so our initial reaction, though, may be a little bit fear or skepticism to say, okay, maybe I'm going to be open to what Jesus actually has to say about every part of my life. And the second thing is this, is that you and I are ruled by something or someone no matter what. None of us are free people. In fact, our culture, if we're ruled by anything, is the... Relentless pursuit of our own freedom, which in a sense has basically enslaved us to everything we have pursued. So there's none of us in here that's actually a free person. We are all ruled by something or someone, and so the question is, who's it gonna be? And so I want you to stay with me on this. Because we're gonna talk about sex the next three weeks. And sex is one of those areas of our lives one of the many, but one that is very significant into which Jesus says, I want to talk to you about that. So what we're going to do first to start, just so that we can kind of get into this, we're calling the series Sex Talk, okay? So this week we're talking about the difference between love and lust. Next week we're talking about same-sex relationships. What is the scriptures, what does Jesus have to say about same-sex relationships? And in the third week we're actually talking about friendship, which you may say, what does that have to do with sex? Exactly. So We're going to talk about that. So I'm doing this week and next week, and then another pastor in the city, Dave Lombardo, is going to be coming in and talking to us about friendship. But what I want to do is just start with, is turn to your neighbor, and and maybe you know this person or not, but it doesn't matter. We can all talk about this. How did your parents talk to you about sex? And maybe your answer is they didn't. Uh, You know, if you're here with your parents, maybe you just want to talk to somebody else, okay, about that. Um, It didn't go well the first time, whatever. How did your parents talk to you about sex? And, And if you have time, can you remember if If you grew up in any kind of religious tradition, can you remember if or what your pastor or priest ever said about it? So just take a few minutes. If you're not sitting close to someone, just move over. It's okay. We're I know in movie theaters psychologically we try to sit as far away from each other, but like get together and just talk a few minutes about that. So I'm sure we could we could go on about this for a while. Um, So one of our elders said to me, "Hey," he said, "if you'd call this sexy talk, it'd be all kinds of people here this morning, but." sex talk it's like it makes us afraid right and so I don't know if you if you grew up in a home where you maybe you had that talk with your parents it was really awkward you could tell they were awkward you were awkward about it you just wanted it to be over some people maybe your parents just you know gave you a book and read this and if you're a boy you looked for pictures there weren't any you just moved on you're like I don't know what that is you know like it's this thing right And, and and most of us can say well, it I don't I don't remember or try not to remember. Or in fact, even as we grew up in the church, I mean, we'd say, well, no, basically, whether it was said or not, whether explicitly or not, it was basically like, don't talk about that. Like, that's kind of bad until you're married, and then it's supposed to be really good, but we're still not going to talk about that either way. And what's so fascinating is you read the story of Scripture, like, you know, God took one chapter in, I mean, through Moses, basically, chapter 2 and chapter 3 at the beginning of the Bible, they're talking about sex. Uh, which is just to say, like, we need to talk about it. First of all, because God seems to think that it's important to talk about, and God isn't like our parents sort of awkward, sweaty, like, you know, not sure what. Like, God's not ashamed or embarrassed about this. It's just the opening pages of Scripture start to talk about it, and in fact, it's a sort of thread all the way through. But another reason we have to talk about it in the church is it is everywhere. Um, we live near this sort of eighth wonder of the world, Von Mills. Um, and when you walk in that mall, like, the posters seem to be getting bigger and the people seem to be just wearing less and less clothes. Um, and it's stunning. Like, I'm like kind of, you're trying to walk and I got three boys and you're sort of like, you know, i just like, wow, this is, this is literally everywhere. This is being used to sell everything. There's a whole new genre of music that um, The weekend has sort of made popular. It's called sex pop. I was reading an article about it. It's like, it's like it's not, now we're not just singing about love, we're just singing about sex. And it's, a whole, it's actually a whole genre of music. We're saying, this is worth writing about. And I was in the car with my voice last listening to the radio, and I'm like, pretty much every other song. I'm like, okay, I hope they don't know what that means. Or I hope, I can't even hear all that that person is saying. Half of it's being blanked out. So I, don't, I hope they don't catch the rest of it. It's just literally everywhere. Apparently, Facebook now has like 51 different um, gender identities that you can... As part of your profile, and the issue of gender identity and sex, though they're separate issues, they're very much connected, and they're part of it. Is literally in, in almost every other conversation we have, every, art, every every other article in the newspaper. So it's everywhere. God talks about it. It's everywhere, but it's also it is something really, really powerful. There was a study done a couple of years ago by an organization called Media Smarts with Ontario high school students and they found that 67% of high school boys are regular viewers of internet pornography. 67%. If I told you that two-thirds of male high school students were addicted to cocaine, you would, like, there would, be, you, you would, we would be reading about it on every single page, and yet uh, like doctors, psychologists, sociologists are saying that the effects that pornography has in the brain is not like alcohol, it's actually like crack cocaine, very similar physiologically in terms of what it does to your brain and your body. So we have a, a pandemic, an epidemic with the next generation of kids. These are Ontario students in our high schools. It is very powerful. I told you before that the, um, the porn industry makes more money than Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA combined makes more money than Google, Apple, Microsoft combined. It is a world, because it's such a powerful thing, because it's an addiction. The Center for Disease and Control in the United States says that one in two people will have an STD by the time they reach the age of 25, 50%. Uh, Sorry, that's from bedsider.org, which is a a birth control website. The Center for Disease Disease and Control says that 24,000 women every year are, are struggling with infertility because of undiagnosed STDs. It is literally killing us as a culture. It's causing major problems in marriage, not just because of pornography addiction, but just the way that human beings are learning or not knowing how it actually interacts sexually. And Marriage is one of those things where it's like you're, you're just sort of expected to know how to do it and to be great at it. <laughs> Right? like This is what our sort of culture tells us. You're expected to know what sex is, how to be great at it. And yet so many marriages are struggling, even if there aren't affairs, even if there aren't addictions. There's just this feeling like we're, we're, not, we're not connecting on this. And those, so there's feelings of emptiness or disappointment or unmet expectations. And actually, interestingly, if you read through the history of scripture, you'll find that like, in some of the pagan religions that were surrounding God's people, sex was actually a part of their worship. Like it, was a, it was a part of their worship life. And so from the beginning of time, people have known that sexuality and spirituality are very much connected. They're both really powerful things. And we live in a culture that says it's no big deal unless you're not doing it, right? Oh, it's no big deal. It's just an appetite. It's just an exchange. But you're not doing it. And that's really, and we actually have this backwards view in saying, no, it's actually really powerful, and therefore we need to talk about it. And so it needs to be a regular part of our conversation as a church. So I think I preached on it like two years ago. So we're we're way behind people. We've got to be talking about sex this morning, or sexy talk, maybe we'll change it next week. <laughs> the Ten Commandments that that God gives his people, there's a commandment that says, do not commit adultery, which is, you know, fairly straightforward. Don't have sex with someone you're not married to. Don't have sex with someone who's married to somebody else. That's sort of what that commandment was. And if you read interestingly throughout scripture, they just seem to fail to keep this. I mean, at one point, one of Israel's kings had 300 wives and 700 concubines. The word adultery just sort of seems to be insufficient to describe what's happening in that verse. It was just a product of what kings did in that world. And so we see Israel actually, in that one single commandment, wasn't even able to keep it. And so Jesus comes, and he begins to teach about the commandments. One of the things Jesus says often and, and especially through this, this one Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the, the re-giving of the law to Israel's people, Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. He often re- refers to, you've heard it said, um, oh, it's up there now, read it. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, says, quoting Ten Commandments, but I say, he was giving them, in a sense, a new law, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's interesting because Jesus, in many of the other commandments, like you know the Sabbath, Jesus seemed to loosen a lot of the restrictions. Like they had made many, many restrictions on the Sabbath, and Jesus was always loose, loosening them. They had made this, there's this commandment, you have to honor your father and mother. But Jesus kind of seemed to loosen it, and say, Yeah, honor your father and mother, but everybody in, in, in the family of God is your father and mother. You should be treating everyone with respect, not just your parents. So he loosened a lot of the commandments. But in this one, he goes even tighter. That, can you imagine if you're sitting there going, they were like thinking, and he's talking to people. who's like, yeah, I've kept the law. I've never committed adultery. He said, oh, really? Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? Rhetorical question. No one's putting up their hand. You've committed adultery. You've broken the commandment. He introduces his idea of lust and makes it even tighter, to which now everybody in the room, man or woman, is going, oh, yeah, Okay. Or what does this word lust actually mean? Hear it. I would say that probably what comes to mind is this idea of like really strong sexual desire. Or maybe what we would say is like when your sexual desire is too strong and that maybe you'll become an addict or whatever, that that's what lust is. But that's not actually what lust is. And if we think that's what it is, we'll not actually understand what Jesus is trying to tell us here. Because he says something interesting. He says, anyone who has lusted after another person in their Lust clearly has something to do with not something you do, it's something that you feel and something that you think. It's about what's happening on the inside of a person. And that's what Jesus did all the time. He's saying, okay, yeah, you're keeping the external law. No one's ever caught you cheating on your spouse. But let's talk about what's in your heart, that lust is actually an issue of the heart. And and how exactly? We got to go back to the passages that were read in the beginning. Um, to understand what lust is. And so here's just a short version of what Serena read for us in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and is created, God creates Eve, they meet each other, they're standing there naked, and Adam starts, you know, busting a rhyme. Like he's kind of a poet, right? He says, this, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called, whoa, man. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, And listen, they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This one little verse actually describes to us what sex is. In order to understand what lust is and how it's different than love and sex, we gotta understand. And there's two lines one is, the two become one flesh, the second is, they were naked and felt no shame. One flesh, as one author had put it, it describes self-donation. Self-donation, that I am giving myself completely to the other person to become one with them. That's the first thing we see about sex. It is radical self-donation. But nakedness without shame is what? self-disclosure. To be naked in front of another person and not be ashamed is to say, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. I'm not afraid for you to know me just as I am. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what sex is? And it's not just sex being described here, but it's this idea of nakedness and one flesh. It is this Giving, and, and later on, the Apostle Paul, as he's explaining this passage, says, yeah, that's what it's like in marriage. The husband's body does not belong to himself, but it is the wife's. His body belongs to his wife. And the wife's body does not belong to herself, it belongs to her husband. It's this, he's saying, you give yourself away to the other person. And and the nakedness of it and the intensity of the act of sex says just how radical is this self-giving. It is as if you are leaving this life of independence and becoming completely joined to another person in one flesh. Two becoming one is not just a vivid picture of what happens in sex. It is a description of what is meant to happen as two people have sex in the marriage relationship. It is giving myself to you, radical self donation but also self-disclosure that I'm not going to hide anything from. Think about that little phrase, nakedness without shame. It's this idea that I'm not afraid to be myself in front of you. I'm not afraid for you to see all that I am, the other parts that I try to hide from people and the things that I'm, the image of myself that I might try to manage in this place and with you. I will not do that. I will be completely myself. Self-disclosure. This is what sex is. And lust is the opposite of that. Lust is not actually me giving myself to another person, but it's me taking from them what I need. See, lust is an attitude of taking, right? If sex is giving myself away, lust says, I want to know what I can get from you. You know know how I know this? Do you know what the bar is for sex in our culture? Consent. It's consent. It's not about giving, but it's about two people agreeing to take. And as long as the other person agrees, you can take. That's what we have taken sex down to, which is the heart of lust. See, to to give myself away to you is to be you-centered, not me-centered. To be willing to trust you By being emotionally, physically, spiritually naked with you. I trust you. But we have come to the point where we have said, no, sex is actually just something you get, and as long as you can agree together, you can have it. You can take it. We live in a culture that it's okay to be physically naked with people that you would never dream of being emotionally naked with. Which is why you can have friends with benefits and casual sex, because I would never bare my soul to you, but I'm happy to take my clothes off as long as I can get something out of it and you can get something out of it. That's why the heart of lust is totally opposite from what the scriptures say sex is. And maybe the exchange is that two people get physical pleasure, but maybe the exchange is that one person gets physical pleasure and the other person feels needed or loved or appreciated. You can see that in Pornography, the person who is viewing pornography takes and gets physical gratification, sexual satisfaction from that. And the other person, hopefully, is getting paid. That's what they get from it. Both are taking. Neither is pledging themselves or giving themselves. There's nothing actually required of the person who is viewing pornography to give themselves away or to make themselves known or to be vulnerable. In fact, they can just take what they need. See, even in, in, in something as terrible as rape, the reason rape is terrible is not just because it's forced, but because the other person is being used. I don't care about you. I just want to use you for my gratification. What we've said is, well, just make sure they say yes, they consent. But just because someone consents doesn't mean they're not still being used. Right? And this is the problem with sex in our culture. It's because we have said it's just a physical exchange, Because you would never manage your finances like this. Like no parent says to their kid on the way to college, listen, when you're there, you might meet someone and you might fall in love and you might be tempted to merge your bank account. Don't do it yet. But if you really love them, take this paper, go to this bank, and just merge your finances safely. We would, right? We were like, are you crazy? You're going to merge your finances? somebody you just met or somebody you think you're in love with or somebody that you're dating right now? We would never do that. But we're telling our kids, it's okay. Just do it safely as if there's such a thing. It's okay. Mingle your soul. Give yourself away to someone who just wants something from you. But As long as you can get something out of it, it's okay. We have lost our minds don't realize how powerful it is. And all we are doing is feeding into the pattern and the mentality of lust. If you were sexually active when you were younger. Chances are it was something that somebody told you or you decided okay, I could get something out of this. Maybe it was sexual gratification. Or maybe it was just to be able to say to like, have some bragging rights to tell your friends. Or maybe because you felt like you were the only crazy one who was holding out and you just didn't want to be. Maybe said, at least someone is giving me attention for some reason for some period of time. Whatever it was,
2: it was an exchange. And it was consent. But it wasn't law.
0: It wasn't even, according to scripture, sex. It was just lust. It was two people agreeing. His lust is an Because even though both people agree, both are diminished in the exchange. To the person who watches pornography, of course the one who's on the screen is being diminished, is being dehumanized, is being treated as a product. But so is the person viewing. They are being dehumanized. They are telling themselves, I can have sexual gratification apart from relationship, and they are losing touch real intimacy looks like. If you've ever battled through something like that, or you are battling through something like that, or you've walked alongside someone who's battling with a pornography addiction, you know it actually destroys relationships. It destroys your ability and desire to even just be with people. It makes you feel isolated. You are being diminished. See, when we worship something that isn't worthy of our worship, our hearts actually begin to shrink. Right? We worship something that isn't worth our time, our energy, our money, and saying, you are the thing that gives me ultimate reality, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate delight. If it's not enough for us, the soul actually begins to shrink, which is why lust is so destructive. See, we can see Jesus as as being a prude or saying, oh, if you even lustous, if you even looked at someone, you know, you've lusted in your heart, you've broken a commandment. Why was Jesus telling us this? He knows lust destroys your heart in the exchange both people become less of who they are. And this is interesting because we can actually then even bring lust into our marriages. That sex and marriage can still be an exchange of consent where each person gets what they want. See, when, when sex grows out of a relationship where two people are radically giving themselves away to one another, where each person is living to serve the other person, person is putting the other person ahead of themselves. And when there's radical self-disclosure, when each person is able to be naked without shame in front of the other person, to not hide, to not pretend, to not only show the parts of them or keep secrets or whatever it is, when there's radical self-donation and radical self-disclosure, sex will always be good. See, in marriage, if you're struggling in your sex life, it's, it's not about trying to read a sex book, although a sex book can be helpful. It's not about the biology We're trying to get the parts right. If something in your sex life it's probably because there's something going on here where one or both are not serving the other person and there's not an, enough vulnerability so that you don't feel right when you're physically naked because emotionally and spiritually you know you're covering up. You're hiding from each other. Scripture actually give us this beautiful path for what fulfilling sex looks like. It's to say, yourself away to the other person, which actually has less to do with sex and everything to do with your day-to-day life. How you live, how you love, how you serve, how you prefer them, how you nurture them, how you admire them, how you respect the other person. It has to do with vulnerability. is Are you willing to truly trust the other person and let them see you as you are? And let them even see the parts of you that need to change your sex life's going to be just fine. Because that's how it works. Which is why then Jesus says, I have a new commandment for you. Have you ever thought about the weight of those words? First of all, Jesus is saying, you heard it said, but I say this. He was putting himself in authority over the Ten Commandments. But then he says, have a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, love each other. It's talking about sex. It's not only talking about sex, but it's definitely talking about sex.
2: Right? Love each other as I have loved you. Did Jesus love us sexually? No, but how did Jesus love us? He gave us that we said freely. Jesus was actually. sexual relationships with a bunch of guys. He had intimate close relationships with a bunch of girls. He was in a relationship with people, though he was a sexual being. He was having relationships that were not sexual relationships at all, showing it There you the love of Jesus. Say, no matter Our marriage, that's because sex isn't the end all and be all. It's not the only thing you need to feel intimacy and in life and relationship. You need that friendship with the other person, but also with other people around you because deep belonging not sexual fulfillment, but relational intimacy. Know others and know. To be able to give ourselves to others in a life of love and to be able to have others know us just as we are. In a sense, the church is a place where we only share our bed with one. to Love is an attitude that, it too, that it gives. It's the difference between love and lust. Lust takes. Lust sees relationships for what I can get out of them. For how I can use this person or this thing to my advantage. Lust why pornography actually becomes so obviously not what God is close to, so obviously not loving. To live a life of love is to reject the idea that I would use another person for my gratification. This is why love means that I'm never going to view anybody else other than I'm married to. Except that maybe i meant to pray for I said, you know I've, I've changed, you know, when i drive Enjoyment. Going on in their life. How can I serve the people for the 30 seconds that I drive past? How can that change the way that we view people around us? We say, God, you put me in their lives. How can I serve them? So here's what I want to encourage you to do things. I want you to consider doing a fast. if they're married, they're not having sex with the people they're married to. And if there is anybody married, they're not enjoying it, and they're trying to figure out how to get out of it. It was interesting when the sex curriculum coming to the school, so fast.
0: to me, I said to friends, it was really interesting to me, I've through pages and pages and pages and pages of this, all talking about sex, there isn't one mention of marriage, and yet every kid in the school is a problem. is good. If you feel like it, sex is good as long as someone else kind of can I just kind of step away from that for 30 days? But here's maybe one which will actually even bear more fruit in your life. I want you to discuss something. That we can even bring into our most intimate relationship. So just, I want you to have this conversation. If you're not married, just have it with a friend, a friend that you're because this is about learning intimacy, vulnerability, and self-donation, not about learning. Started to change the way that we viewed each other in relationships like this. Like, could you imagine a world with no sexual assault, with no rape, with no STDs, with no pornography, with no human trafficking? Could you imagine a world like that? And we say, no, that's impossible. And that may be impossible in the world out there until Jesus returns to set things right. It's not impossible in your world. The Apostle Paul in one of his letters to the church says, you people, we are meant to shine like stars. It's not impossible in the world that you live in to begin to change the way you see and you treat people. And when you do, the world around you starts to say, man, you live forget whether or not all of those things can change in the world if each of us if the church if the 2.5 billion people around the world who call themselves followers of jesus began we began to treat each other like this the world would change in a few moments we're going to take communion It's the symbols of the the blood and body of jesus which first of all symbolize the love of jesus for us right that he has given himself to us without holding back you to think about this this morning this is what i was thinking about to share with you when you actually take that this is just Cobb's high fiber white it tastes regular bread and it's grape juice but there's this thing about when we participate To live in you, to change the way you think, to change the way you feel, to change the way you live. And so I want you as you come to take it this morning, just to feel hope rising in your life, to say whether you know if you are someone battling with an addiction, or you in your marriage have been through a lot of crap together, and you're wondering is this gonna be able to heal? How's this gonna go? Or maybe you've had hurt in your past things you regret or that other people did to you. Or even as you're thinking about it right now, saying, Okay, I'm a single and I don't know what it is to be a sexual Christian. you have been through, I can heal you. He's also saying, I'm enough for you. I'm enough for you, no matter how dissatisfied or frustrated